Our Father, you have ordained all of this for your glory and for our joy. It is your wise plan which has brought us together and you intended for our good. And so I pray that you would help me to speak with clarity, with understanding, with simplicity, to help these wonderful students learn more about you and learn how to enjoy you every day. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, helped by your Holy Spirit. Amen. The topic of this camp is enjoying God every day. And that is also the title of this first message, Enjoying God Every Day. And the roadmap for where we're going in this first session is we're going to fairly quickly hit on five questions that have to do with enjoying God every day, and then two principles to help you enjoy God every day. And the principles are really the meat, and so we'll spend a little bit more time there and go a little bit faster on the questions. So five questions on how to enjoy God every day, and then two principles to help you do that. We're going to start really big picture. We're going to zoom way out and get the context so that we can set this retreat topic in really cosmic scope so that we can understand how it fits into the big picture of life and the universe and everything. So the first question about enjoying God every day is this. What was God doing before creation? Question number one. What was God doing before creation? Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So what was God up to before that? What would Genesis 1-0 say if there were such a verse? What was God doing before he created the universe? Well, the ancient church theologian Augustine, who lived in the 300s, reports that some people answered that question by saying, well, God was inventing hell for people who ask questions like that. But Augustine didn't like that answer. He thought it was too jokey and too flippant. He's like, no, 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 I'll give you a serious answer. And the answer is that before creation, God was enjoying the fellowship of the Trinity. For all of eternity, God has not been a lonely, solitary individual. A solitary confinement is one of the, the worst punishments that someone can be assigned to. It plays tricks with your mind if you're put in a cell and you have no human interaction. Especially if the cell is bare and it doesn't have decorations on the walls, but it's just you and there's no clock, so you can't tell when it's day and when it's night. There's no windows. You don't get any interaction. Even your meals are just slid under the door or through a slot. It plays tricks with your mind. It causes you to get off kilter. It can cause people to go insane if they're exposed to it long enough. Being all by yourself for days, weeks, months, years is not something any of us would want to experience. God was not in solitary confinement for all of eternity. He didn't create the universe out of desperation, like, oh, I'm going crazy here. I've got to get some more people. Poof! Oh, there we go, people. That's not why God created. Rather, God, instead of being in solitary confinement, has always been enjoying 
himself. Because our God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Before God created the world, Father, Son, and Spirit were interacting with one another, communicating with one another, enjoying one another. The Trinity is like a society, like a community, like friends. And so for all of eternity, before God created, Father, Son, and Spirit were enjoying one another, communing with one another, glorifying one another, praising one another. God the Trinity has been eternally happy. We get a peek at this in John chapter 17 when Jesus is praying to his Father. In John 17 verse 5, Jesus prays, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus gives us a peek into eternity past and says that there was glory there with Father, Son, and Spirit. And then later in the same chapter, down in verse 24, he prays, Father, I desire that they also, the disciples, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so before God created the world, there was love. Love from the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father. From the Son to the Spirit and the Spirit to the Son. Father, Spirit, Spirit, Father. Eternally, God has not been in solitary confinement, but rather he has been loving within himself. Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons in one God. So the answer to that first question, what was God doing before creation, is... God was loving. God was eternally loving within himself. Question number two, why did God create? Why did God create? If God was really so full of life and vibrancy and vitality and excitement and praise and glory, why did he get around to creating the universe at all? It's not because he was bored. It's not because he needed a new challenge. It's not because he was unloved and needed some little creatures to love him. It's not because he lacked glory and needed a bunch of little people to give him more glory. Rather, God being love created in order to share his love. God created in order to share his love. The theologian John Edwards Jonathan Edwards compared the Trinity to a fountain that overflows and spills its water all around. God in eternity is so full of love that his love overflows and he creates a universe. He's so full of love that he doesn't want to keep it to himself. He wants to share it. And so he creates a universe and creates humans so that he might share his overflowing love with them. God created so that we humans could see his glory and enjoy his love. To say it another way, God created in order that we might be in relationship with him. Consider Adam and Eve, the, the first humans that God created. Genesis 3.8 tells us that God would regularly come and walk with them in the garden in the cool of the day. He would talk with them. He would enjoy a relationship with them. That relationship was tragically broken by sin later on in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden, no longer able to enjoy 
God's love in such a direct way. But God resolved to restore that relationship. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, that there's a repeated promise where God says to the Israelites and through the prophets, I will be their God and they shall be my people. God determines that he is going to be in relationship with a group of humans. He is going to be God to them and they are going to be his people and he's going to make it happen even though sin has created such a gulf. And so God sent his son Jesus Christ that we might be reconciled to God, that the relationship that was broken might be restored, that we might be able to enjoy the love of God. Paul's really excited about this in Romans 5, verses 10 and 11. He says, If while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul is so excited that because we've been reconciled to God through Christ, we can enjoy God. So the answer to the second question, why did God create the world? He created it to share his love. He created it that you might have relationship with him. Question three, do you have a relationship with God? Do you have a relationship with God? It would be irresponsible for me to assume that in a group of this size, every single one of you has a relationship with God by faith. None of you were born that way. None of you were born automatically having a relationship with God. Rather, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that all humans are by nature children of wrath. Every single one of you was born a sinner under the condemnation of God. And the good news of the gospel, as Clifton read, is that Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Everyone who places his or her faith in Christ Jesus is brought away from that wrath and is brought into the realm of God's love instead. The only escape is to be saved by grace through faith, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2.7. So I ask you, have you personally placed your faith in Jesus Christ? It's not enough that you grew up around the church, as many of you probably did. It's not enough that you know lots of things about God from hearing it preached or from reading the Bible. The question is, do you have a personal relationship with God? Have you entrusted yourself to Jesus? When you think forward to that final day when you will stand before God, what would you say if God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? It's not enough to... Tell God good things that you've done. It's not enough to bring out your Awana attendance record or your church attendance record. The only answer that will pass muster in that day is, I trust Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose from the dead that I might be saved. I trust him. Do you have a relationship with God? I'm going to be speaking for most of this camp directly to those of you who are believers and any of you who are not get the chance to really listen in. You get to peek into what we Christians have in our relationship to God. 
And my prayer is that those of you who are still outside that, who don't yet have that relationship, would, would really get a little bit jealous of us when you see what an amazing thing we have in our relationship with God, that you would want it and that you would find it. God invites all of you and each of you to place your faith in Jesus Christ if you've never done so. Do you have a relationship with God? That's for each of you to answer in your own heart. Next question, question number four. What does God want from you now? What does God want you from now? Assuming that you have a relationship with God. Speaking to those of you who are Christians, who have a relationship with God. You have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. What does God want you from, from you now? What's your Christian life supposed to be about? Some Christians live as though the Christian life were about obeying God primarily, as though that was really what God wanted them. God really wants you to obey him. And so you should make sure that you examine every part of your life, make sure that you're following all his commands, that you're not breaking any commands, that you spend a lot of time thinking about your own heart and its sinfulness and trying to replace sin with righteousness. And all of that is good and true. God does want us to obey him. In fact, our obedience is supposed to be an expression of our love to God. But I don't think that obeying God is the, the primary thing that God wants from us, the most important thing that God wants from us. Uh, other Christians act as though what God really wants from us in our Christian lives is to know about him. It's to learn a lot about him. And so they read big, fat theology books. And I have nothing against big, fat theology books. I read lots of big, fat theology books in seminary and before seminary. You know it's fat when you turn page 999 and you're like, page 1000. Wow, what have I gotten myself into here? There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the, the ultimate purpose for which God has saved us. Learning about God can help us to have a deeper, closer relationship with him. For the same reason that you ask your friends lots of questions like, what's your favorite color? What sports do you play? What's your favorite show? How many siblings do you have? What are your favorite memories? You ask all of your friends those questions to learn about them, to know about them, so that it'll enhance your relationship with your friends. And so it's totally legitimate to read small books and big books and listen to all sorts of sermons and learn about God. But simply knowing about God isn't the primary thing that God wants from you, Christian. Others would say the main thing that God wants from us is to glorify him. And I think that's right. That is why God has created us. That is why God has saved us, that we might glorify him. But so often I find there's a breakdown when I ask people, okay, what does it actually mean to glorify God? Like, how do you actually do that, especially day to day? Like, okay, we can glorify God when we're singing, but how do you glorify God other times? What does it actually mean to glorify God other than just a vague Christian word that we know we're supposed to do? Well, I argue, because I think the Bible argues, that the way that you glorify God is by enjoying God. You glorify God by enjoying God. 
And so I think the main thing that God wants from you, Christian, is that you would enjoy him. Because when you enjoy him, he is glorified. The clearest place that the Bible teaches this is in Philippians chapter 1. You're welcome to turn there with me or you can listen. Philippians chapter 1, Paul is in prison and he is writing to the Philippians and giving them a report on how he's doing in prison. And he says something really interesting in Philippians 1, verse 20. Paul says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul says, no matter what happens to me, whether I get released from prison or whether I get executed, Christ is going to be honored. God is going to be glorified in my life. And so we ask Paul, how are you so sure? Wouldn't you like to be sure that God's going to be glorified in your life no matter what you do? That would be great to be able to go and say, I'm convinced that whatever happens to me today, God's going to be glorified. Christ is going to be honored. Wouldn't it be great to be able to say that with confidence? Well, Paul does. Paul is convinced that God will be glorified in whatever happens to him because of what he says in the very next verse. Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In other words, Paul is so excited about Jesus that no matter what happens to him, everybody's going to see how excited he is and say, wow, Jesus must be really amazing. Paul says, if I keep on living, then I just get to keep telling more people about Jesus. And if I die, then I go straight to heaven and I get to be with Jesus. This is a win-win scenario. And when other people see that and see that Paul isn't grumbling because he's in prison, he's not envious of those who are outside prison and get to go around and do whatever they want, but rather Paul is so full of joy in God, they say, wow, this God isn't like those gods that are made out of stone and gold over at the temple. This is a different sort of God. This must be a really important, a really glorious God. The way that God is seen to be glorious, important, magnificent, is when you and I enjoy him. It makes other people say, there must be something really wonderful about this God, that he or she is so excited. And so what God wants from you is to enjoy him, because the way that you glorify him is by enjoying him. You'd feel honored if your best friend said to you, I just love spending time with you. I'm so glad we're friends, and I hope we'll keep on getting to know one another better and better every day. When your friend enjoys your friendship, that's honoring to you. And likewise, you honor God when you enjoy your relationship with him. You glorify God by enjoying your relationship with him. Question five, how do you enjoy your relationship with God? How do you enjoy your relationship with God? 
You all already know some correct answers to this question. One way we enjoy a relationship with God is by reading the Bible. Another way is by praying, by singing to him at church, by talking about him with friends. All of those are true answers of ways that we enjoy God. When I grew up, I grew up in a Christian household, and so I was really strong on reading the Bible in the mornings, praying in the mornings, going to church on Sundays, going to youth group on Wednesday evenings. But I wasn't really clear on how to relate to God the rest of the week. How can you enjoy God every day beyond morning devotions and Sunday church? How can you enjoy God when you eat, when you're doing school, when you're getting dressed, when you're hanging out with friends, when you're on social media, when you're playing video games, when you're practicing a musical instrument, when you're playing on a sports team, when you're writing college application essays, when you're working your first job, when you're on a road trip with your family, when you're baking cookies, when you're cooking bacon, how can you enjoy God in all of those scenarios? How can you enjoy God every day, all the day? That's the question this retreat is all about. I'm here as a learner alongside all of you. I chose this topic because I've been learning and growing in my own enjoyment of God over especially the last six months to a year. And because I realize I still have more to grow. I want to get better and better at enjoying God every single day, all throughout the day. And so I wanted to spend hours plunging into this topic and then being able to come and share it so that you all can join me on this journey of enjoying God every day. So those are the five questions. And for the remainder of this message, we're going to look at two principles that will help us with that last question. How do you enjoy God every day? I'm going to bring up two principles to help you with that. And really, the entire rest of this retreat is going to be answering that question. How do you enjoy God every day? So, two principles to help you enjoy God. Principle number one. Union is the basis of communion. Union is the basis of communion. Communion is spelled C-O-M-M-U-N-I-O-N. Typically, in the church, we use communion to talk about the Lord's Supper. We take the Lord's Supper at church sometimes. We take communion. But the way I'm using it here and the way lots of Christians have used it throughout the centuries is to talk in a broader way about our relationship with God. The, the word commun communion, it sort of sounds like communication, which is a two-way conversation. And so communion is a two-way relationship. It's just another way of saying having a relationship with someone, having fellowship with someone, enjoying being around someone. And so when I use communion this week, that's the meaning I'm giving it. Not talking just about the Lord's Supper, but more broadly about a relationship of communion with God. Do you ever feel like a failure in your relationship with God? Maybe you haven't read your Bible in a few days or a few weeks. Maybe you got mad earlier and yelled at your sibling. Maybe you're in a spiritual slump and haven't felt close to God for weeks or months. 
I feel safe assuming that all of you who have a relationship with God at some point have felt like a failure in your relationship with God. Maybe you feel like a failure in your relationship with God right now. Maybe that's one of the things you're hoping for in this camp, that you'll come here and get a spiritual high, and maybe that spiritual high will last you at least for a couple days when you get back home. When you feel like a spiritual failure, the mere thought of trying to have a relationship with God can be exhausting. On the one hand, maybe you feel like you need to do something big to get things right again. Okay, tomorrow I'm going to get up at 5 a.m. and I'm going to read the entire book of Deuteronomy. And that'll just be the kick I need to get back in close relationship with God. But then, on the other hand, you don't really have the energy to do that. Like, you're not even sure you have the energy to find the book of Deuteronomy. So you're stuck. You feel distant from God. You're not really enjoying your relationship with him. You feel like you've got to do something, but you don't have the energy to do anything at all. And so you just stay stuck in your failureness. It's not an enjoyable place to be. It's not where God wants us to be. What do you do when you feel like a failure and you don't have any energy to relate to God? Well, here's where this first principle can help us. Union is the basis for communion. More fully, our union with God in Christ is the basis for our communion with God in relationship. What does that mean? Well, I want you all to draw a diagram with me because I think it'll help you. So find a blank spot of your paper, and on the far left-hand side, write the word God. Blank area of your paper, left-hand side, write the word God. And then, directly across from it, on the right-hand side of your paper, write the word us. So you've got God on the left side of your paper, you've got us on the right side. Now, draw two straight lines, not arrows, just straight lines, between God and us, one on top of the other, like a really, really long equal sign. So God on the left, us on the right, line number one, line number two. Now, the top line above it, just label it, union, U-N-I-O-N. That top line represents our union with God. And then underneath the bottom line, label that communion, C-O-M-M-U-N-I-O-N. That bottom line represents our communion, our everyday enjoyment of God. Now, here is the most important part of the entire diagram. Turn that line labeled union between us and God, turn it into a one-way arrow pointing from God to us. Not from us to God, from God to us. A one-directional arrow. This is super important because union is all God's work. The fact that you are united to God, Christian, the fact that you have a relationship with God is all God's work. He's the one who started it. He's the one who keeps it going. You didn't do anything to unite yourself to God. You didn't do anything to give yourself new spiritual life. Rather, God did it. He united you to himself by sheer grace. At the moment of your conversion, you were connected or united to God through Christ. That's what Paul teaches in Ephesians 1.3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The reason you have all of the blessings of salvation, like adoption, being a part of God's family, or justification, or reconciliation, isn't because these are just boxes floating up there somewhere. You're like, aha, now I have some adoption. Aha, now I have some justification. Rather, all of those blessings are connected to Jesus. And when you get saved, you get connected to Jesus, and everything that belongs to him now belongs to you. All of the blessings of your Christian life occur because you are in Christ, because you're connected to Christ, because you have that union with him. Union just means a connection. And this union is all God's work. Tim Chester, who wrote a wonderful book called Enjoying God, explains why this matters. He says, however much you mess up or neglect your communion with God, you can always start again because you're always united to God in Christ. If you mess up a human relationship, like with one of your friends enough, then that friend can dump you and be like, I don't want to be your friend anymore. Hopefully that doesn't happen to you often. It's painful. That doesn't happen with your relationship to God, Christian. You can't mess up bad enough. You can't be enough of a spiritual failure to get God to dump you. Because God started the whole thing. He is the one who united you to himself. He is the one who started your relationship. And he's going to keep it going. So even on your worst day, when you are the biggest spiritual failure ever, that union, that connection, that relationship between you and God still exists. And it's still strong because it doesn't depend on you. It depends on God. It's a one-way arrow from him to us. God is the one who united you to himself. And he will keep it going no matter whether you're doing great spiritually or whether you're doing horrible spiritually. And that should give you hope when you feel like a failure. Because you can always rest on the union that you have with God. And know that it's all his work and he's going to keep it going. So, for that second line... We've got the union line. It's a one-way arrow from God to us. Communion, turn that now into a two-way arrow from God to us and from us to God. Our communion, our everyday relating to God, is a two-way relationship, just like all of the other relationships that you have in life. Our communion is, is a two-way street. Think about a father who has two sons, one named Jack and the other named Phil. And every morning, Jack gets up and he makes his father breakfast, and they eat breakfast together. And then later in the day, Jack and his dad spend some time together. They throw the football around. They talk about sports. They play some video games. They do projects around the house. Meanwhile, Jack's older brother, Phil, is really embarrassed of his dad. And so Phil will run down and grab a plate of food and then run back up to his room, turn his music up blaring really loud, he doesn't really come out of his room much. Whenever he encounters his dad, he just kind of grunts. and just doesn't really like to be around his dad at all. Now, how many sons does Jack and Phil's father have? Well, he has two. He has two sons. But how many of them are really enjoying a relationship with their father? Only one. Only Jack is enjoying communion with his father. Phil isn't. He could... But instead, he's hiding. He's embarrassed. He's in his room. 
And so similarly, our communion with God is a two-way relationship. If you're a Christian, you have the ability to enjoy a relationship with God. You can have that communion. But if you decide you don't really want it, you're embarrassed of God, you've got better things to do with your time, you're not going to really even try, then you might end up like Phil, and you're not really going to enjoy the relationship that you could have with God. And so I want to explain at at this camp how we can be more like Jack, that the sorts of things that we can do, really practical things, everyday things, to have that communion with the Father, to enjoy God. Sometimes even that feels overwhelming. It might feel overwhelming, especially if you feel like a, a spiritual failure. You're like, I don't know that I can even do like Jack. I don't know that I can even make breakfast, spiritually speaking. I'm just so tired, I've got to sleep in. And here's one more bit of good news about communion. It's 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. Our communion is two-way, from God to us, from us to God. But it still starts with God. He's the one who loves us first and gives us the ability to love him in return. And so when you feel like a spiritual failure, you can be encouraged because your union with God is still firm and because God is still communing with you by loving you. And so the very first thing that you can do if you feel like a failure is realize that God loves you and really believe it. And then start returning love to him. So our union with God, our relationship with him, the the fact that we can commune with God is all one way. God's the one who set it up and he keeps it going. Then our communion with God, the amount that we enjoy him practically on a day-to-day basis, depends on both God loving us and us loving God in return. Principle number two You relate to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You relate to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All right, time for another diagram. Find another blank spot of your paper if you have any blank spot remaining. And write in a row, Father, Son, and Spirit. Or you could just do F and S and S if you're running out of space. Just all in a row, one after the other, Father, Son, Spirit. Then go down a little ways on your paper and write the word us. So you've got Father, Son, and Spirit, and then down a little ways, you write us. Now I want you to draw three connecting arrows, and these can be two-way arrows. Draw an arrow between us and the Father, an arrow between us and the Son, and an arrow between us and the Spirit. All two-way arrows. A two-way arrow between us and the Father, a two-way arrow between us and the Son, a two-way arrow between us and the Spirit. So, what is this all about? Well, God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's like the chorus of the first song we sang. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. The God that we as Christians confess is one God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, what that means is that you can relate to the Father, and you can relate to the Son, And you can relate to the Spirit as persons. 
you don't just relate to God generically. That's fine just to relate to, to God. But more than that, you can relate to each person. You can think, what has the Father done for me? How has the Son contributed to my salvation? How is the Spirit supporting me day by day? You can relate specifically to the Father and specifically to the Son and specifically to the Spirit. Never separately, like trying to drive wedges in between them because they are all one God. But distinctly, you can think about how the Son died for you, about how the Father planned your salvation, about how the Holy Spirit gave you new life. You can relate to the Father and to the Son and to the Spirit. And that will enrich your enjoyment of God. You already know how to do this at some level. We sang Grace Alone because I asked Clifton if we could sing Grace Alone because it's such a good example of this. When you sing Grace Alone, you are singing to the Father and then to the Son and then to the Spirit in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. Verse 1 begins, I was an orphan lost at the fall, running away when I'd hear your call, but Father, you worked your will. It's a verse about the Father. Verse 2 begins, you left your home to seek out the lost. You knew the great and terrible cost, but Jesus, your face was set. It's a verse about what Jesus, the Son, has done. And then verse 3 begins, I was in darkness all of my life. I never knew the day from the night, but Spirit, you made me see. It's a verse about what the Spirit has done for us. And so when you're singing a song like Grace Alone, you are singing to the Father especially, and then to the Son especially, and then to the Spirit especially. That is, in the first verse, you're enjoying how the Father has planned your salvation. In the second verse, you're enjoying how the Son has accomplished your salvation. And in the third verse, you're enjoying how the Spirit has applied salvation to you. And it's not as though the Father tunes out when verse 1 is over. Like He's like, all right, there's my verse. I'm out of here. But rather, because Father, Son, and Spirit are one God, the whole song is to them. The Father is just as pleased to hear you singing to his beloved Son and to the Spirit as he is to hear you singing to him. And so we're not separating God or trying to create three different gods who all dislike each other. Rather, as grace alone shows, you can praise the one God while also thinking, how has the Father loved me? How has the Son loved me? How has the Spirit loved me? You'll enjoy God more if you think about relating to God, not just generically, but if you think about relating to God as relating to the Father and to the Son and to the Spirit. Tim Chester says, Your relationship with God will be deepened and enriched if you think about how you're relating to the Father, to the Son, and to the Spirit. Think how each member of the Trinity is relating to you and how you're responding to them. And that's what we're going to explore for the rest of this camp. We have three more sessions, and we're going to devote one session to each of the members of the Trinity. Tonight, we will talk about how to enjoy the Father, tomorrow morning, how to enjoy the Son, and tomorrow evening, how to enjoy the Spirit every day. So I'm going to close, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Spirit. So listen to that as you listen to this prayer.
Our Father, you are the one who has planned this whole world. It is by your will that it exists. And you have planned our lives. It is in love that you have predestined us Christians in your Son. And so I praise you for your kindness in choosing us, those of us who truly have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It isn't because we were so smart or so spiritual, but it's because you chose us. And so I thank you, Father, for choosing us. Jesus, you being eternally God, took on human flesh. You came to live among us. And you lived a perfect life and then died a death that you did not deserve. You died in our place so that we who believe in you are not condemned. And Spirit, you brought us life. Apart from you, we hear about Jesus and it just sounds like nonsense to us. It sounds unimportant to us. But by your kind work, you cause us to have new life. You cause us to have love for the Father and for the Son and for you. And so I praise you, O Holy Spirit. And so, Father, Son, and Spirit, be with us now as we go throughout the rest of our day and teach us this day how to enjoy you. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a book to give away. I'm going to have a book to give away at the end of each session, and it will simply go to whoever throws their hand up first. First, I'm going to tell you about the book. This is a book called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. Talked some about the Trinity in this sermon. Talked about Father, Son, and Spirit. Some of you may understand, and some of you may understand less, what we really mean by the Trinity, how it works. It's simple enough to say God is one God in three persons, but if you really start to think about how that works, your brain can get tied up in knots pretty quickly. This is a very helpful book for understanding what the doctrine of the Trinity is and why it matters. Why it's not just something that we should let the scholars think about, but why it really matters for you and your Christian life and how you enjoy God day to day. This is a used copy, and so somebody's gone through and highlighted things that they think are important. I don't know whether they actually are or not. Hopefully they are, so fair warning. So, who would like this book? I think I saw you first. So if you want to grab it. Okay, and then after this, we are going to go to discussion groups. This is the part where the leaders need to get out their pens because I have a couple of discussion questions that I recommend you use and you are going to want to write them down. And you students can just relax because your leaders have to get them. Or you could write them down too, and then when your leader's panicking because they missed one, you can be that great person to help them out. All right. Question number one. With which member of the Trinity do you have the strongest sense of a lived experienced relationship with which member of the trinity do you have the strongest sense of a lived experienced relationship in other words do you know the father best the son best or the spirit best or which of them do you feel closest to 
You're like, I really know the Father well, but I don't really know the Son. Which of them do you have the strongest sense of a lived, experienced relationship? That's question number one. Question number two. Have you ever felt like a failure in your relationship with God? What did you do? And what should you do in light of what we learned here? Have you ever felt like a failure in your relationship with God? What did you do? What should you have done? And then, last question, more of an activity. I recommend that you close small group by having three students pray and have one pray specifically to the Father and one specifically to the Son and one specifically to the Spirit. It's a closing activity.